Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. I am a card-carrying member of the Advent Police. And what we do as Advent policemen is that we keep Christmas out of the church and out of our homes until December 24th. And we are the worst of policemen because we hold this law up unflinchingly. At least, I pretend to. Whenever I'm outside of these walls, I am like many of you. I see the lights, I see the Christmas cheer, the Christmas sentimentality, and I am intoxicated by it. I love it. And I love it primarily because if the lights were not all out, and if everything weren't beautiful and cheery, I'd probably rush into my inevitable seasonal affective disorder early. Come see me in January and February, and you'll know what I'm talking about. But I'm not really kidding when I say I'm a member of the Advent Police. And the reason why I hold off on Christmas, or try to, at least in the church, until December 24th, is because I am convinced that if we skip Advent altogether, if all we have is the Christmas sentimentality and cheer, then we are left with optimism and not with hope. Optimism and not hope. So what is the difference between optimism and hope? Well, I think the way that we can see it in a nutshell is to look at a journal entry from the chief optimist, the American tycoon, Andrew Carnegie. Now, Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland, came over to America. We know that he got rich and became a really big deal. But a lesser known fact is that Andrew Carnegie was a Presbyterian. He was raised that way. Only, this is here in the late 19th century, early 20th century, he begins to lose his faith. And more than lose his faith, he begins to grow suspicious of religion altogether. And in fact, when Darwin is writing about his theory of evolution, Andrew Carnegie, unlike many who read these theories and said, okay, we know more about the origins of the earth and the cosmos, but we're still holding on to faith. Andrew Carnegie was one of those who, you, who thought, this means I can't have faith at all. And he writes this in one of his journal entries. I remember the light came in as a flood and all was clear. Not only had I got rid of theology and the supernatural, but I had found the truth. All is well since all grows better, became my motto, my true source of comfort. Man has risen to the higher forms, and there can be no conceivable end to man's march to perfection. All is well, 
since all grows better. Man has risen to higher forms, and there can be no conceivable end to man's march to perfection. I don't think there is a soul in this room who can read that with a straight face today. This is optimism in a nutshell. All is well, since all grows better. Now, Andrew Carnegie was alive, this part of his life anyway, in the Gilded Age, in that time before the first two world wars. But Andrew lives into the first, the age of the first world war. And when the war broke out, he revisited this entry. And this is what he writes upon reflecting on that entry years later. As I read this today, what a change. The world convulsed by war as never before. Men slaying each other like wild beasts. I dare not relinquish all hope. I dare not relinquish all hope. Optimism, Carnegie found, fails when it is swallowed up in darkness. By contrast, hope is found in something beyond human history with its cycles of boom and bust, optimism and despair. Hope is found in an incarnate God. And when we read the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, we find that hope is not found in human development or human potential, but through God himself. Lest we think this a new idea that I'm making up, looking back on the early 20th century, take, think back to the people of Israel the people of Israel who were promised security and and prosperity. Think to the time of the exile. Remember that time when they had been thrown out of the land that they had been promised and they were strangers in a strange land. It wasn't all that different from their slavery in Egypt. Now for them, this wasn't a real bummer. This wasn't an inconvenience. This was a crisis. This was a theological emergency. God had promised them a future of safety and prosperity, and here they are, slaves in another power's land. It appeared there was no way forward for them. It appeared that God had either broken his promise or we had made God up all together. But this is where optimism and hope are different. For this is also when, when things were at their absolute worst, we see a shift in the emphasis of the prophets. Instead of saying what they had always said and rightly said, turn from your ways and we will continue to possess the land. Turn from your ways and we will prosper. We see that the prophets are now saying, 
that human well-being, the people of Israel's well-being, is no longer bound up in their behavior. It's no longer bound up in their human potential. They instead say that hope is found in the inbreaking of God from another sphere of power altogether. They were in such a place that there was nothing left to be done. They needed a rescue from outside. And this, my friends, this is the truth about Advent. More than a call to repentance, which it is, more than a call to make things right, which it is, Advent is first and foremost that we, you and I, are awaiting the living God who makes a way out of no way. The living God to make a way out of the pain and the suffering and the bondage that we experience in this life. I recently saw a picture on uh, Twitter. I don't really recommend going to Twitter for good sermon illustrations, but this is an exception. Uh, I recently was on Twitter, and I saw an image that I think captures this Advent paradox that I've been talking about. In this image, we see a picture, uh, or it's a picture of two juxtaposed images. And in the smaller circle in the center, we see the self-portrait of the famously tormented artist Vincent van Gogh. And this is the self-portrait of van Gogh shortly after he mutilated his left ear. And when you look at the image, you see a Van Gogh who is horrified, who is haunted, who is full of melancholy. But over and against this small image where we live was stretched this much larger image that stretched all across the banner. And This image is that famous image that you see. Unfortunately, it's been made like too popular. You see it on coffee mugs and everywhere. It's the Starry Night. And now many of us, we can just go visit the Starry Night at at MoMA, and it's, it's great. It's very accessible. But many of us forget that the Starry Night was painted when Van Gogh was in a mental hospital a mental institution, and he creates this beautiful image of heaven descending upon the village. If we only look at the self-portrait, we surmise, and rightly we surmise this, that Van Gogh is struggling against the dark forces that will eventually lead him to his fate. Dark forces that were too powerful for him. But above him, in this image, we see the celestial realm visually magnified so that it dwarfs everything that is below and engulfs everything that is below. An art critic once wrote that in the starry night, Van Gogh had brought down heaven to earth. In the scriptures, we see that in Christ, God himself has brought heaven 
down into our suffering and sin-infested village. And according to Scripture, only God can make this movement from heaven to earth. And in the incarnation, which we'll celebrate tomorrow and the next day, God himself does bring down heaven to earth. But holding on to Advent and looking for the second coming, we see in the book of Revelation the same thing. The city of God is depicted as coming down, as falling down from heaven to earth. What the prophets prophesy of this need for an external invasion, an external rescue to rescue us from where we're at, the prophets and the New Testament writers say that that is met in this child, in the God-man, in God who brings heaven down to earth by becoming one of us. Now, in this season of Advent, I know that many of you, and, many, and myself included, we've appeared at church well-dressed, well-fed, and well-mannered. But there have been terrible events among you this year. I've heard of cancer, of untimely deaths, of alcoholism, of drug addiction, and even suicide. We see the self-portrait of Van Gogh, and sometimes we feel like that's the only thing that we see. Advent tells us that before we look to the light, we have to catch a glimpse of reality as it is. To call a spade a spade. To call evil what it is and to call it out. Now, I don't know if you're on the left or the right end of the political spectrum, but I don't really care. For many of us feel it is a dark time in our country right now. And those of us who are so used to American optimism may fear that this is the end of the story. The message of Scripture, the message of Advent, is that despite the boom and bust cycles, despite the joys and despite the sufferings, we hold on to that hope beyond hope in the one who makes a way out of no way, the one who has promised this to Abraham our ancestor, who has seen it through to his son, Jesus Christ, and who is seeing it through for you and me in our own age. We see this in our gospel lesson this morning. Mary and Elizabeth are not wealthy people. Mary and Elizabeth are not Romans. Mary and Elizabeth have experienced pain and shame and humiliation, and yet they are leaping for joy, for they know that the hope has come, that despite their present circumstances, they 
hold on to the promise that God is doing a new thing. That what we see around us is not the end of the story. And that there will be a day when every tear is wiped away. When every pain and suffering is done away with forever. And when everything terrible is not only made right, but undone. And that is your hope and mine as well. Today, two days, what, two or three days after the darkest day of the year, our medieval Christian forebearers have invited us in the fourth Sunday of Advent to look into the darkness, to look into hell, to see it for what it is, call it what it is. But our medieval ancestors had hope. And that hope is going to break into the world tomorrow night. That hope broke into the world 2,000 years ago, and that hope breaks into the world in the resurrections of our daily lives. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. I won't say tonight, and I won't say it was just 2,000 years ago, it is now. This is the good news. God makes a way where there appears to be no way. It's what he's always done and what he always will do. And that is why we have not optimism. We have hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.